I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Dan Sugar, the founder and CEO of NextTracker. NextTracker builds tracking systems for large-scale solar and battery plants that boost output, make them more resistant to extreme weather, and make them more intelligent. Dan lives and breathes solar. Some call him the King Midas of solar because he's turned so many ventures into gold. He's been responsible for some of the biggest and most consequential solar projects and companies ever built. In this interview, Dan describes the moment he realized solar's potential early in his career and why it will be so disruptive. On a personal note, Dan has played an important role in Powerhouse, and it's one of the many reasons I was so happy to have him on the show. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2017. Our friend, venture investor Shale Khan, sets the scene. So uh, I'd like to offer you two introductions to tonight's guest on what it takes, Dan Sugar, who's sitting behind me. The first is the sort of public introduction. The second one will be a little bit more personal for me. The public version is basically just a list of some of the accomplishments that have led a number of people to crown Suge the King Midas of solar. Uh, <laughs> As all of you certainly know, very few entrepreneurs in any industry build successful companies. Of those, very few build successful companies that ultimately have a successful exit for investors that is also good for employees. And of those, extremely few do so in a sector as immature and volatile as clean energy or solar is. Dan, as far as I can tell, is the only person who's done it twice. First, he was the president of Powerlight, which if you were around in solar a decade ago, you definitely know Powerlight. They were an early pioneering developer of what at the time was considered really large-scale solar projects. Powerlight was a, a leader in its field in this immature market at the time and was ultimately acquired by SunPower in 2006 for over $300 million. Powerlight then formed the core of SunPower's downstream arm, the development side of SunPower's business, which has gone on itself to become one of the largest solar developers in the world. Second, Dan was and is the CEO of NextTracker, which is a leading provider of tracking systems for solar projects. So NextTracker, in my mind, is notable for a couple of reasons. First, it sort of ushered in a technological revolution that is happening in solar right now. This is a massive transition for large centralized solar projects going from most of them being fixed tilt, meaning they did not track the sun, to projects that do track the sun. Trackers were only 15% of the utility scale solar market globally in 2014, and they'll reach about half the market by the end of this decade. And NextTracker has far and away the largest market share in that. So it's responsible for that transition more than any other. In my mind, it's also notable for being a hardware company with a wildly successful investor exit, having been acquired by Flex, a multi, multi-billion dollar manufacturing company last year for an eye-popping $330 million. So those are two incredibly appealing claims to fame but let me also offer a, a personal story uh, that relates to some of the other things that I think Dan built along the way. 
So it was 2014, and I was attending Solar Power International in Dallas. So for those of you not in the solar industry, Solar Power International is the biggest annual trade show for solar in the country. It gets like 20,000 people who just descend upon a city and basically take it over for a week. And on this particular day, the trade show had ended and the parties had begun, which is really the whole reason to go anyway. I was passing through downtown Dallas on my way to an event. And I looked in the window of a bar and I started seeing a bunch of familiar faces. So I looked closer. And as I was looking around the room, I came to realize that basically everybody in that room was a solar pioneer, at least in my mind, someone who I deeply respected, who continued to do great work in the space. It was at least how I saw it. It was basically a who's who of solar sitting in the room. So my first reaction was, why the hell didn't I get invited to this? Um, But after my ego recovered, I snuck in um, and I asked somebody what this party was all about. And it turned out it was a Powerlight reunion. So this is five full years after Powerlight was sold to SunPower. And the team was still gathering at least once a year to celebrate and to reminisce. And I don't, you know, that shows more than just Powerlight's lasting culture and the collegiality of the team. It was also astounding to me how many of these people ultimately went on to great success within this market. I have this theory that the vast majority of successful solar companies today can be traced back to origins within three or four companies that were around a little over a decade ago. And if one of those companies is you know, the PayPal of solar, it's Powerlight. So I'm really excited to have the Suge here, both to imbue in all of us his, a bit of his sort of magic fairy dust, um, but also to help us understand how to build lasting, successful teams that go on to do great work above and beyond the company that they originally come from. So with that, I will hand it over to Emily for the interview of Dan Sugar. Thank you. Shale, before you're off the hook, uh, many of you in the room probably have heard that Shale is leaving Green Tech Media after eight years of dedication to the company. So, so before we dive in with Dan Sugar, we actually have a surprise for you, which is your very own special edition of our high voltage round. So if you could come back up. <laughs> oh, shit is right. All right. We're going to, why don't you grab that one? Um, so Shale, you're a self proclaimed skeptic, yet deep down, I think you really do love this industry. So instead of a spirit animal, what is your spirit company in this industry? Oh, that's a great question. All right. I'll give a, I'll give a, a powerhouse shout out here. I think my spirit company is Mosaic because um, they are the legitimate business company. They're financially oriented, um, but they have a clear mission. They're doing this for a reason. They always have been. So kudos to them. If you were to start a company, and you may be starting a company soon, what would it be? Hmm. I guess we'll find out in a year or something. Um, I don't know. I've thought about it for years and years and years, um, and I have a bunch of ideas, but you know, can't put them on a podcast just yet. <laughs> if you were to launch this company and you wanted to be surrounded by a community of other clean energy entrepreneurs, where would you be based? You know, I wish that there were one. I can't 
I can't think of what, you know, it'd be even better if it was in the East Bay. I live in the East Bay. Oh, yeah? So, in Oakland? Yeah. Well, Oakland's fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll look around. I'll let you know if I find one. Okay. If you had to go backpacking for a month with Jigger Shaw or Stephen Lacey, Jesus. who would you go with and why? <laughs> oh, man. I think Jigger and I would kill each other on the first day. So I'd last longer with Stephen. Um, and also, Stephen, uh, for those of you who haven't seen Stephen Lacey, if you only listen to him, you don't know. He's a power lifter, um, which I feel like he's – so he's a, he's a big guy. Um, and ultimately, you know, I want him to be able to carry me out of the, the wilderness. <laughs> so that seems like reason enough. All right. Finish these sentences for me. I gave GTM the best eight years of my life because <laughs> – I really care about its mission and um, I care about the, you know, need of this industry to understand what is happening and why and what might come next. Success is? Happiness. I'm most proud of? The team that uh, continues at GTM in my absence. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Shail Khan. All right, let's get started. The personal stories of clean energy luminaries are rarely told. So Powerhouse and GTM have teamed up to bring you those stories in this event series and podcast called What It Takes. And this month we are featuring the founder and CEO of Next Tracker, Dan Sugar. So please give me get, join me in a round of applause for Dan. All right, Dan, tell us about where you grew up what it was like, and what you were like growing up. Sure. So I grew up in upstate New York in, you know, kind of a beautiful um, suburban situation. My dad was from the South, and my mom was from New York City. So I don't know if you ever saw the, the show The Odd Couple. That was my parents. And But, uh, you know, we had a, a, a strong family um, uh, backbone there, and dead end street. We grew up with the kids on the street, you know, we'd play softball out front and things like that. And we kind of took care of our own stuff. You know, we mowed our own lawns and so forth. And I went to engineering school, uh, there and, you know, just a really super place to grow up in the Northeast and the values it's, it's harder to make friends back East, but like those friends you make are with you forever. And so it was foundational when I was in, um, high school, I was in a big high school. I wasn't super happy there. And I, I begged my parents to send me to an outdoor school. And at the uh, high school in the library, they had this little book called The Illustrated Guide to Private Schools. And I chose these like super small outdoor co-ed schools. And I ended up going to a school up in New Hampshire called the White Mountain School. And that really um, grounded a lot of core environmental values. And so we would go to school in the morning academically, and then we would do outdoor activities like kayaking and things like that. Um, so it was an extraordinary place to uh, grow up. And um, that really became my roots of, you know, my my identity. Yeah. I've heard from a few people that your dad had a big influence on you. Tell us about him. My dad was one of these guys that like, um, if you ever saw an old black and white movie with Gary Cooper and Gary Cooper is in the movie, and then if you could imagine Gary Cooper walking out of the screen into real life, that was my dad. <laughs> and what I mean by that is he knew the good guys from the bad guys. He knew right from wrong. He knew the right thing to say. You held the door for the woman. You did this. You did that. And he had – he was like the nicest guy in the world if you met him. And he was 
up to a certain point, he was very flexible, but then he had like um, a, uh, just values that were like immobile about like doing the right thing no matter what. And so he was just, just a great, great father. And so, you know, um, uh, he'd tell me like w- when I had my sons, he said, son, when you, when you put your, your, your boys to bed, make sure to rub their back and tell them, tell me you love them. And I mean, he was that kind of dad. And so he was just awesome. Yeah. Great. Dick Swanson, who was our first guest on What It Takes back in September, founder and former CEO and CTO of SunPower, knows you well. And he said that you were one of the first people in the country to work on distributed generation. Tell us about that and tell us about your career at PG&E and then how that led you to Next Tracker. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for the very gracious intro and Shell, your, your comment. So first of all, Dick Swanson is an, a personal hero of mine. I mean, when I was in my mid-20s, he had already, you know, uh, developed, had world records for the highest efficiency crystalline solar cell. He had persevered in keeping that company alive um, through, you know, um, satellite-type applications for solar and then, you know, other uh, uh, boutique applications And until he connected with um, – uh, the founder of Cypress Semiconductor, T.J. Rogers, and then they, uh, you know, went after the terrestrial business. I ended up, just as a little aside, um, we ended up uh, doing, when I was at Powerlight, doing a supply deal with them, the big, the first big multi-year supply agreement with SunPower, and then eventually we merged with them. They acquired the company. So after I said all that, I completely forgot the question. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so Dick says that you're one of the first people that worked on DG, distributed generation sure. in the U.S. Yeah. So tell us about that and, and your start of your career at PG&E. Okay, so this, is, this was like a complete epiphany for me. So I started, I'm an electrical engineer by training, and uh, uh, I got this job at Pacific Gas and Electric in in electric transmission and distribution planning and operations. And so um, what you would do is, what that job is basically about is you would, you're between, the the great thing about that place is you have to know the whole electric system because you're between generation on one end back then, you know, big G, like central generation, (laughs) and distribution. And so you're trying to transmit power. So what that job is all about is, you have to forecast load growth, you know, basically customer demand in a given area. And there's a long horizon when you're at the utility, you know, three to five years to like, you know, make sure that the transmission lines, the wires and the substations with the transformers have enough capacity to serve those. So I'm kind of in this job and it's like, okay, here's how you do it. It was like, you know, linear regression of load growth. And, and what I was noticing is, um, a lot of the projects that we were doing, the load never materialized, meaning, you know, three or four or five years ago, there were plans, developers were saying, hey, we're going to build these subdivisions or whatever, and they never happened. And so we were spending a lot of money building these projects that weren't needed. And so I was like, oh, well, we shouldn't do that until the load comes. Um, by the way, there's kind of a perverse incentive for utilities to invest because the way utilities actually make money is – they're all, they're regulated utilities, and by investing money, the way they actually make money, they have a guaranteed rate of return. The more they spend, the more they get. 
So the more transmission and so forth they build out, they get an authorized rate of return back on the asset base, as long as the asset is used and useful and prudent, right? So so anyway, so I was killing projects and also, you know, we were doing some like, oh, let's put a bigger wire, you know, which is called reconductoring on this power line. So I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the load and I'm like, wow, the, the power is really, this asset, this power line and substation are good like 95% of the year. They're only overloaded um, in summer peaks, like from like 1 to 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. in a lot of these areas. So, well, at that time, part of my area was included Humboldt. And there was the old uh, 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 dis, uh, um, discontinued Humboldt nuclear power plant. It had been taken out of service. But there used to be a power plant up there. By the way, there were seven operating power plants in California. You know how many there are nuclear power plants? You know how many there are now? One, Diablo Canyon, which was just being commissioned when I joined PG&E in the mid-80s. And even Diablo Canyon is scheduled for early retirement. The freaking operating costs are higher than the marginal costs of buying power, which is mostly renewables. So the future, like... Nuclear is over. The only reason anyone would proceed with nuclear is too much testosterone, ego, and lack of intelligence. (laughs) So just saying, okay? Okay. So, so, okay. So here we are, and I've got this, we had this Humboldt Bay nuclear power plant that had been decommissioned. And up there, there were these two five-megawatt diesel gensets that were on skids. They were basically like locomotive engines or whatever. And they were hooked up where they, they made power. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. They, these generators are there. Why don't we put those at the end of those lines that we're spending all this money with a huge amount of risk because you don't know if the load's going to materialize. We have to make the decision three to five years in advance. You don't know if that subdivision's going to happen or the shopping center. Why don't we put the, the thing out there? And then if the load, if it comes, then we'll reconductor. And this thing's only operated a few hundred hours a year. So this is going through my head. This is in 1988, in February of 1988. And then I'm sitting at my desk in San Francisco at 1 California Street, 101 California Street. And... This opportunity to work in photovoltaics in the R&D department comes over my desk. So at that point, I'm like, I was like, basically at that point, I'm like, okay, I've been in this transmission planning job for two years. I've learned like 90% of my job. What am I going to do? Spend the rest of my life learning the last 10%? Not to like, you know, dishonor that profession, but all right, I got to do something else. So I was like applying to like LBL, like they were building the superconductor. Like I wanted to do something else. So, um, I get this thing like, oh, it's in the R&D department. Cool. Photovoltaics. What's that? Photo, light, voltaic, energy. I'm like, well, what the hell? There's a solar cell. So the light hits this thing and it makes power from light. When does it run out of electrons? It doesn't. Why not? Well, this PN junction thing, it's a closed circuit and it kind of like makes DC power Forever. (laughs) Really? Yes. Forever. It doesn't run out of electrons. 
I'm like, that's impossible. Well, you know, eventually the packaging fails, but this thing's got like conceptually a 30-year design life. So what else in your, what else in your home or business is a, has a 30-year design life? Maybe your spouse. <laughs> I can't think of another damn thing. So I'm like intrigued by this. I'm like, wow, this is wicked cool. Not only does it make power kind of like almost forever or for the within the practical life of the materials, but it makes power when we need it, which is in these peak parts of the day. So I had this like inspiration um, before my brain had atrophied in old age as it has now of like, why don't we, instead of people at that time were talking about building 100 megawatt power plants in the desert, which we ultimately are doing now, um, which is cool in its own right. But I was like, hey, at that point, given the scale of the industry, why don't we do 101 megawatt power plants, but we'll strategically locate those at places in the electric transmission distribution grid that provide a lot of extra value in addition to the peak power we're generating. Very interesting. How do you find those places? Well, we developed a methodology. Here's how it worked. PG&E um, uh, basically monitored, they had with each, within each uh, uh, meteorological area, they statistically, uh, they had a statistical significant sampling of certain customer loads. Like, like, here's how a residential load in the Central Valley, you know, around Fresno and Bakersfield and so forth would look. And here's how a commercial load on the coast would look and so forth. So you had... Basically, load shapes, 3D load shapes. So we, in this, the solar group, also had uh, solar insulation monitoring stations. So we monitored 16 solar places. So the, the utility at that point had very little data. They only had one, they only had two pieces of data. And from that, we could construct a 3D load curve. What they had was they had the total kilowatt hours consumed in the billing period a month, and they knew the customer class. So they knew, okay, within Fresno, there's X residential customers that consume Y kilowatt hours. And we, and we know what the load shape is from these, this modeling. So we could construct a 3D load shape. And then what we did was we mapped all the solar insulation monitoring uh, stations to those areas, the 201 distribution planning areas, which existed in PG&E at the time. I'm going a little deep. I hope that's okay. So um, and We'll like, come back. We'll come back. All right. Pull me back. So anyway, so we submit this request to the PG&E mainframe, which took two days of processing power. So we get a call from like the keeper of the mainframe, like, what the hell are you guys doing? It's like, no, this is like super important research. We really need this. So this thing like generates, and I pu we publish a paper with my colleagues, um, Howard Wenger, who was uh, until very recently um, president power of uh, both uh, Powerlight and Sun Power, one of my best friends. Um, I published one with him and Greg Ball, who was at DNVGL, and now he's at, I think he's at Tesla. Um, anyway, so we were able then to do this double screen methodology and look at, oh, not only do we see where the peaks are in the whole group, this whole PG&E service territory by distribution area, not just system, but I can tell you in which areas the solar can offset that peak. And so we published a paper in 1990 called PV grid support. And that basically said, if you target PV in the grid, you can like more than double the value than you can based on the basic generation. So um, we spent like five years on that. And what was happening then uh, was the National Solar Research Project with 
what's called PVUSA, Photovoltaics for Utility Scale Applications, that was co-founded by the U.S. Department of Energy, PG&E, Southern California Edison, and other utilities. That was happening in Davis initially as a technology validation. We reframed that national research project to test this grid support thing. We built a system near Fresno in a little town called Kerman. Don't ever stay in the hotel down there. Please, God, don't go there. Um, but anyway, we built this system down there, and then we measured the impact on the grid. And you know what? The damn thing worked. <laughs> this grid support worked. So what we did was we turned the we. Uh, I personally got inside these. We de-energized the transformer at the substation, which is like the size of this room. Personally got in there. You know, it's like oil and stuff. We de-energized it. We put these resistive thermal devices. And then what we did was we turned like the PV on and off. And we're like, look, we're cooling the transformer, right? Because we're reducing the load. And there's this I squared R, you know, heat thing going on that we're like knocking down. So then we published like 20 papers showing how much PV helped the grid. And then in 93, I left PG&E with this stack of peer-reviewed papers that showed how much PV helped the grid and became the expert witness for, uh, with my colleagues for the, cal- for the solar industry to perfect net metering. And we won. So that was a good thing. It wasn't just that. It was, you know, amazing work by Howard Wanger. I mean, Howard and Tom Stars and Les Nelson and all these other people authored the thing. But we had the analytical underpinning backed up by this empirical data that showed, yeah, this thing helps the grid. And we introduced that. There's a lot of stories there. I'm just going to back up and just say PV grids, that was awesome. Okay, so then that, like, we rode that so hard. And then uh, basically, um, you know, used the California wind to like get net metering in other states. And uh, up until like this year, with those PVs uh, we were putting on displaced peak load, guess what? We put so much freaking PV in the grid, 10 gigawatts in California. We've actually off, we've changed the shape of the California load curve. It's about 50 gigawatts. We like I, I can't believe it. Like, seriously, I was the expert witness in 2001. I'm on the stand being cross-examined by utility lawyers. It was, it was kind of freaky. It went on like three hours. And they're asking me, they're like, well, at that point, there were two megawatts of PV in the grid. And they're like, well, how many could there be in like five years? And I'm like, gulp. Like, I'm thinking like 50 megawatts, <laughs> right? At Next Tracker last quarter, we shipped over 100 megawatts a week of wow. trackers. Wow. So this thing, the thing I've consistently blown it throughout my career is I always underestimate this, the rapidity of the growth of solar because we're in this thing I call a transformational disruptive technology. So it's like, you know, what computers did to manual typewriters, blah, blah. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> this is great. You're just leading this interview. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> sit back and have a beer. Uh, um, so tell us about how, so all of this work leads up to PowerLite. Tell us about the early days of PowerLite. Shale, I really appreciated your comments on PowerLite and the reunion that you witnessed five years ago. Um, for me, it's all about the people I'm working with and the team and having common mission and shared values. By happenstance, there's a PowerLite reunion happening tonight. Yes. And after this, I'll be going there. So I really appreciate you mentioning that. So PowerLight, uh, the genesis of PowerLight was uh, my former partner, Tom Dimwitty, who's 
one of these guys that's so smart, he's scary smart. He's got like three degrees. He's got like a structural, mechanical, and architecture degree from like Cornell, MIT, and Berkeley or something like that. And so Tom had actually called me when I was running the solar research group at uh, PG&E in like 92 and was like, hey, I invented this lightweight way to put solar on a roof. Can you test it on your facility? So I was like, yeah, come on down. Show me what you got. Let's, let's check it out. So we, we put it up there. It had some issues, but it had a lot of problems. He went away. And so then when I left PG&E in 93, I was in the industry. I went, uh, joined a large area thin film manufacturing company. Um, he's like, hey, Dan, like, help me do my first project. So we kind of like co-designed it and fulfilled this project. And he was like, Dan, you, you got to join me at this startup and do this thing. And I was into like six figures and like raising a young family. And he was making like 15 grand a year. And <laughs> so I, I remember the question of my wife, I go home and I'm like, hey, Kathleen, what's the absolute minimum amount of money that I can make? <laughs> And I let her do the math, right? She's like, you know, a number X. So I come back to Tom. I'm like, look, man, I want, to, I want to go all in with you. My wife says X. He's like, okay. So he raised his thing to that number. We kept our salaries the same. And just to show you what an awesome guy is, we had an agreement. I'm like, look, let's just agree on my equity position in the company. We had a five-minute conversation, less than that. We had a handshake. We didn't talk about it again for about six years until like the employees wanted stock options and then, or like some people were asking about it. So I'm like, we, we picked up where we left off. Nothing had changed. Wow. We put that down on paper. And so basically, Entrepreneurs then we went don't through. try that at home, but it is a testament. Yeah. <laughs> it is Just a saying. testament to Tom Dinwiddie. Well, it, Tom drove, Tom and I drove each other really hard. And so we were, it was like a classic yin yang kind of, the kind of thing you can guess which which position I was in, um, but he was an awesome guy. I learned a lot from him. He thought really big, and uh, that taught me a lot. And um, he was really he had uh, really strong uh, values, and uh, you know we built an amazing culture there. And you know what we've tried what I've tried to do at these other companies like Next Tracker is to really focus on that. It's the strength, the success of your company is a lot less about how great of a widget you've invented. It's about the strength of your team, because whatever you've come up with is going to be obsolete in a few years. And so it's about the strength of your team to innovate and move things forward. And so we learned a lot and we kind of grew up together professionally in that organization. But as time's gone on, I focused a lot more on the key relationships, you know, it's like the musical analogy is you have this band, they put out a great album, and then the band falls apart. And so what you want to have is the ability for each person to bring their special talents and contributions to the table and to be able to work collaboratively to keep evolving the group, whether it's a musical group or whether you know, it's, it's a group of people do, do driving technology. And in the early days when you guys were barely paying yourselves, where was the money coming from for the company? Yeah, that was like super hard. So um, I remember like, the, I remember like, it was like, oh my God, our burn rate is $25,000 a month. That was a lot of money back then. So my house 
was personally collateralizing our line of credit at the bank. And yeah, Tom didn't have a house, (laughs) Uh, but he, he, he put everything he had on the table as much or more than I did. So um, we were, we were fully in that together. I mean, he was living on his credit cards. I had this line of credit on my house. Um, And what had happened was when I, before I joined Tom, I developed, started developing these projects when I was at this thin film manufacturing company. And, uh, you know, we, what we also did was we submitted some R&D grants. And so at the time, we won a lot of those. We wrote some really good proposals, and we developed some great technologies. So we had uh, some uh, a couple small but really helpful grants from the California Energy Commission, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, the U.S. Department of Energy, um, and a couple of their entities that really helped us in that early period as we were both doing commercial systems. But then in 1996, um, we, we were looking around and the best place, the, the numbers look best in Hawaii. And they look great in Hawaii because Hawaii at that point had a 35% state solar tax credit. And they had um, really good sunshine and they had comparatively high, well, uh, the, about the highest utility rates in the U.S., by the way, in those years, it was 12 cents a kilowatt hour in Hawaii. And so, you know, it's like three to four X at now out there. So I was going out to Hawaii and, you know, knocking on doors and I met this local guy. Um, I'm just going to tell you this story about this one project. So we were like, we'd been working this deal on this hotel. It was a five diamond star hotel on the big island of Hawaii uh, called the Manalani Bay Hotel. It's a great property. So we, we were doing this 200-megawatt system, and, you know, we were going to ask for this big deposit to help fund the company, and um, it, the, everything was looking great. We actually did, to my knowledge, that was the first financed PV system in the of, of commercial system of scale in the United States. So I'd, we'd gone to the we, – we did an operating lease. I went to GE Capital and first Hawaiian leasing, and we had 10-year operating lease. So the way it was structured, well, we had 7, 10, and 12-year models, but the way it was structured is, you know, they would absorb all the tax credits, they would uh, reduce the basis and then provide a lease at some interest rate for the client, and then at the end of that period, they were to buy it at fair market value. So I thought we were all set to close the deal. And we go in there, and I'm brainstorming with my guy, like, hey, what are some other things we should, like, you know, negotiate here and we're all set. We've been working on all year. We're like totally out of cash at the company. We're like so far over our skis. We don't even, we probably can't make the next payroll. So we're super psyched to get this deal closed. So the, the person that really ran the hotel wasn't the general manager. It was the, this woman who was, it was actually owned by a Japanese company, Tokyo Corporation. And she was the Japanese woman in there that really ran it. And she was vice president of finance. So her name was Florence Ozaki, who, of blessed memory, she passed away. So Flo comes in and she sits down with us. She goes, I'm also, we're all set to close. We're about to walk in with the president and the general manager. She says, Dan, she said, we know how hard you've worked. Uh, you guys have worked so hard on this deal. We feel really bad. Mr. Yamoto just got back from Japan. Tokyo Corporation shot it down. We're sorry. This project's just too big, too much risk, too much negative cash flow. We can't proceed on it. So she's telling me this. So we walk in the meeting. I didn't say anything. I didn't have a chance. All these guys show up. We walk in. We sit down for the meeting. They're telling me this. I'm just, what's going through my mind is like, 
you know, I'm going to lose my house. Oh my gosh. You know, uh, you know, we're going to have to lay people off. Uh, I don't know how we're going to dig out of this hole. So, but that's going through my mind. On the one hand, on the other hand, I'm like, how do we save this deal? So they tell me all this stuff, and they're done. They're like, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, for these reasons, we can't proceed. And I'm like, you know what? I totally agree with you. I've heard you. What you're saying is the project's too big. There's too much negative cash flow. It's too much risk. I've been thinking about that, and I've got some really good news for you. I've renegotiated a lower rate with the bank, which was true by like a whisker. We had a lower rate. And we're, what we're going to do is, in consideration that I've been thinking about it, we're going to have a smaller project instead of 70, instead of 200 megawatts, going to be 75 megawatts. This rate's going to look really great. It's going to be the right amount of cash flow, the right amount of risk, and it's going to look better. And I turned to my guy, John. I'm like, John, are you available right now? By the way, that night I was flying to Australia to install a one kilowatt PV demo. (laughs) Personally. So I said, John, are you available right now? Yeah, Dan, I'm available. I go, great. I go, this was fantastic input flow. We're going to go back. We're going to redo the proposal tonight. John's going to bring it to your office tomorrow. Would that be okay? Can yes, Dan, you can bring. She's like, look, I, I, you know, Mister Yamoto. And I'm like, oh, that'll be fine. I go, we, we got this thing flow. I'm listening to you intently, and we're going to address your concerns. This thing's going to rock. So we go back to the house. I threw all the papers off the desk on the floor. I go, John, we're in deep shit. Let's <laughs> fix this deal right now. So. We, we, st- we like do this thing over. So I call Flo at five o'clock or secretary answers. I hang up. I call at 510, secretary answers. I hang up. I call 520, Flo answers. Flo, this is Dan Sugar. I got some great news. We've redone this project for you and you're going to love it. It's basically the right amount of risk, the right amount of cash flow. And, you know, it's going to, it's going to look the, the, we've optimized, based on this new lease rate, your internal rate of return, which is what she was focused on. John's going to bring this at 9 o'clock in the morning. Will you personally green him and take that? Yes. So we go, I missed my, so we finished, I missed the connecting flight from the Big Island to Oahu to Australia. I got the last flight. I barely made the flight. I get to Australia. I'm in Australia. And then I was going through Tokyo. We were negotiating a license deal with a company there for our rooftop technology. I get back to California week and a half. On the what, the first email I get is a one sentence email from Monolani Hotel from Florence Ozaki. It said, "Have Brian Lau at First Wine Leasing draw up the lease documents for seven year lease option." Bam. That they give us a twenty five percent deposit, which was why do I remember this seven hundred seven hundred seven thousand dollars at something like eight. 55 a watt, $8.55. That, then what we did was we, um, we basically uh, leveraged that. We created a conference at Hawaii, Harvesting Hawaii's Renewables. Let's hear Manalana's story. That client, anyway, that was such a pivotal moment for us and my career. But that client became the most fiercely loyal client to us. We ended up... Oh, we did their hotel. We did their golf facility. We did their wastewater treatment plant. We did another project. And you know what happened? When September 2001 happened, I'm sorry, 9-11 happened, right? 
Hawaii's all about flights and tourism. Manalani went from 85% occupancy to 10% occupancy within two weeks. And you know what we did at Powerlight that year? We said, we're going to give back Manalani. We're going to fly the whole company and their spouses to stay with you for a week and do a strategic offsite. And we took 30, about 40% of our earnings that year and flew the whole company to Hawaii and did this offsite. I still on my desk today, I have a picture of the whole company up on the Manalani. They, they did it out of Lava Rocks. We were up there and uh, gave back to them. So um, anyway, that's kind of like how we were, we built this customer loyalty and trust, uh, but then really invest in the team and then just delivered and took risk and so forth. Tell us about all that, all that work at Powerlight and how that led to the acquisition at SunPower. And at that point, I assume you could have, you could have just retired at that hotel and lived for the rest of your life. So, but you kept going. So tell us about the acquisition and yeah, then sure. what led you to Next Tracker. Um, that was a different time in the industry. We were chatting with some of the entrepreneurs in this uh, awesome incubator here at Powerhouse prior to this, you know, discussion. Um, at that point in the solar industry, it was kind of like when Henry Ford was in the automobile industry. And so the industry was a lot more immature. It was 10 years ago. Um, and there was just a lot of cost to ring out of the system. For example, we, a lot of the solar panels you see are derivatives from 12 volt battery charging solar panels that were developed 40 years ago. <laughs> like that's where 36 cells came from was to charge a 12 volt battery when you actually do the math on that. So there were better ways to design solar panels. Um, so we, you had to do an in, integrated approach. For example, uh, we clean sheeted a, a, a solar panel for sun power. This is something I wanted to do at, next, at, at Powerlight and like where the width was optimized for a tracker. So we like, look, we really want it to be about six to seven feet, such and such width. That saved a lot of cost for mounting and electrical and so forth. So for me, there was a power of vertical integration to fully optimize the thing instead of like having these, you know, ad nauseum discussions with solar panel guys that were like, didn't get it on the other side of the table. So we were in the early part of the industry. So it made sense to do this vertical integration thing. So we did that merger. By the way, most mergers fail. Statistically, like 80, 90% fall far short of the goals. That one won. And the merger we just did with Next Tracker and Flex One, from the standpoint that you know goals were achieved. So you know we knocked a lot of costs out. Uh, shareholders on both sides won, employees won, um, and customers won, and other stakeholders like government people won. But the, the the company we built at Powerlight was the right company for ten years ago. It's not the right company structure for today. A vertically integrated thing doesn't work in an industry at scale. You don't have you know companies like. Like the air conditioner, the company that made the air conditioning system for this building, they're not like doing building construction. They're not even installing their own unit up here. Contractors are, right? So it, it you know, that was, that merger structure worked then for those reasons. So we knocked a lot of costs out. We crushed our numbers uh, for eight out of nine quarters. We beat our financial projections. We took the year of the merger we had done. The prior year, about $220 million. Our plan for the next year was $380 million. We actually did $440 million. And the following year, we were shooting for a billion. We would have done it, 
But the financial crisis hit, but we still did $830 million. Why do I remember these numbers? <laughs> I, I, no, seriously. Like, I can't remember squat. So with all, with all, yeah. that, with all that success, um, why, why keep doing it? You, you're very politically engaged. You do a lot in philanthropy. You could be doing that exclusively, but you do both. Why? Okay, you see this? Here's my, my wrist. You see that blue stuff and that, that vein there? If you cut that, like, pure silicon comes out. <laughs> no, seriously, I got, like, PV fever in 1988. I'm like, wait a minute, this stuff, get me, let me get this straight. Like, light hits us and electricity get, comes out? Hashtag PV fever. Oh, just saying. <laughs> I mean, people should be wearing Voltex, you know, while they're walking down the street to power their devices, right? And so it's like, you know... Um, I just, I love this thing. I, I really think people across all parts of the political spectrum and geographically love solar. The only negative about solar over the, over the years was the cost was too high. And uh, again, way ahead of when I would have predicted, solar became the lowest cost way to generate power in sunny areas like a year ago. And I mean... You know, we should be taking victory laps, you know, all day long. And we are, but we have to redouble our efforts. And, you know, it's like really important. I mean, I've been, um, you know, we really can't let coal get built out. This stuff's like really bad. And what it's doing to the air and the water. I had the pleasure of serving on the board of the um, Sierra Club Foundation for six years. I got termed out a year ago. You know, I really encourage everyone to engage uh, in envir the environmental movement. Um, do your part, engage, you know, socially and politically to move this thing forward. I mean, it's super important. So, uh, for example, like in India, I've been doing um, solar in India uh, for since 91 and 92. And so, you know, it could have gone two paths. It could have gone where China went, where a hell of a lot of coal got built, like two plants a week for many, many years. Now China's become – it's so bad and it's epicentered in Beijing where all the policy people are um, that they, they've, they're really driving solar and they're not just – it's not just a greenwash. I mean they are really pushing that. Well, in India, it could, there were two futures there. Thank God, you know, right when the economy started taking off, the cost structure came in and you had this visionary prime minister Modi come in and drive it. And so we did – at Next Tracker last year, a gigawatt in trackers in India. And we're making trackers there right now, manufacturing and serving. And 10 gigawatts of solar got done in India, which is a lot for India, a lot of power. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, I'm a big sci-fi fan. You've seen that movie Terminator, you know, and then they go back and there's that thing like no fate, you know, the future is yours, no fate, right? Like you can, you can... You're, we're creating our own future, right? So, you know, I just believe that we can create something that's better, that's lower cost, that's, you know, um, and also good for, our, for uh, our kids. So, I mean, it's really that simple. And it's like, I just think about it a lot. I have other passions outside of solar, but, you know, I'm really into it. And so I saw an opportunity to move it forward. <laughs> yeah, really? in case you didn't, that's not obvious. Um, you, 
you're Jewish, as yes. is about half of the clean energy industry, it seems. What role does religion or spirituality, if any, play in your career and in your life? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Well, first up, I mean, to me, it's intuitively obvious to the casual observer that there's no religion or whatever that's like has any universal truth. I mean, that's just preposterous at face value, right? So any religion that speaks to good things is equally good. Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, but I also believe in honoring your traditions. And you can get a lot of um, comfort and, and meaning in your life by embracing your traditions. Now, in Judaism specifically with respect to the environment, there is a strong environmental aspect of Judaism, which is it's reflected at multiple times in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, like your enemies advancing on you through the forest, you can't burn the forest down to take out your enemy. You cannot do that. There's a holiday, an annual holiday called Tikkun Olam, which is like basically making the world a better place and so forth. So I think the, and, you know, just speaking philosophically about, I wrote this little book for my kids, just like on reflect, philosophical reflections. I think it's like embracing your traditions, whatever they are. You know, when you go through life changes, you know, your parents pass away, something happens or this or that. I mean, that sense of community and building on that can provide a lot of, a lot of comfort to you. And then you can contribute in, in ways together. So speaking more broadly about the environmental movement, you know, many, uh, I think there's a great opportunity for faith-based stuff in environmental. I was totally blown away by the Pope's environmental encyclical, which I actually downloaded and read. It was unbelievable. And I was so uh, hopeful when he personally handed a copy of that to President Trump that he would really take that to heart. And it was just a travesty that he walked away from the Paris Climate Accord afterward. That was super disappointing to me. Um, because I think there's an opportunity to connect here instead of pandering to, you know, a very select group, small group of folks that have legitimate concerns about their livelihood for a dying technology like coal. You know, I've, I mentioned India. There's a wonderful um, spirituality in India. Um, we just had the Diwali Festival of Light and and throughout many of these religions, there's connections with the environment. People really care about this stuff. And so for me, it's the same thing. It's not, it's like our traditions, our cultures, our religions, and the environment are really the same thing. And I, uh, there's some of these, I've, I've wanted to participate in this. I've just been a little busy building the business. But, you know, like this whole like, um, these conferences where they're multi-faith conferences talking about how to connect these. I, I want to get more engaged in that. I think it's super interesting because that's what people care about, right? I mean, you know, you know, when you're on your deathbed, people aren't saying like, hey, did you have that last day in the office or did you burn that last lump of coal, right? Maybe they're saying like, how did you treat people and what did you provide for for your family? As far as those values that you're living out now at Next Tracker. Yeah. When you look back to your younger self and when you look at some of the people that are here tonight and those that are listening that are just at the, the early stages of hopefully what becomes the success that you built for Ship Power Light and now at Next Tracker, what do you tell your younger self and what do you tell them? Well, I, I come back to like the, the power of the relationships are really the power of the company. 
You know, these companies are created by people. So it really comes down to functional relationships, active listening for, you know, those of us that are, you know, uh, verbal, strong people pulling back, letting other people come up, giving other people the uh, opportunity to be in like the newsletter or be the spokesperson for the company or, you know, sharing equity and stock generously with your staff is really important and something uh, we really think is uh, helpful in the long term of the company um, is to have people that we're all sort of in this together. And so, um, you know, I think uh, I've done also coaching projects where um, and then I've had some of my executive staff do it. I've done this twice. So yeah, I don't know if you've ever done this. So the, you have a coach, you hire a coach, they come in and uh, this is self-inflicted pain. It's good, good pain. So what happens, you invite the coach in, they talk to everybody you work with, and then they sit down with you and like, hey, here's the list of, of stuff people likes, like, like you're doing great. There's like five things on the list. <laughs> now here's the list of stuff I'm hearing back. And they, they've homogenized it so you don't know who it's come from. You think like, really? Is that really how I'm being perceived? Yes, that's really how you're being perceived. Wow, I got to work on a lot of stuff. Yeah, you do to get to the next level. And so it's always like a work in progress. You never get there. But I think, you know, basically at the end of the day too, it's, you know, you can improve on that stuff. But people at the end of the day want to know, do you have their back? And so you encourage people to like take risk. And if there's a mistake, it's like, it's okay. We all own it, right? We tried this thing. You know, we shipped this this component because customers were wanting it. Uh, we've had issues. We go, okay, let's go back and fix them and stand by the customers. And the customers are like, wow, you guys really stood up on that. It's like, yeah, that's who we are. Okay. And so I think, you know, for me, it's about I come back to that relationship thing. I will say this, choose your partners very carefully. Um, you know, go on, maybe go on some trips together, do some stuff. Be, you know, it's like choosing a partner and, you know, in your personal life, it's really important. And so it's like, I mean, the other thing is, um, you know, it, it sounds almost like, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure the exact word, but, you know, um, how, how wonderful everything can be, um, the words slipping my mind. But, you know, there was a hell of a lot of sacrifice in these companies. So, uh, you know, at Powerlight, it was like every weekend I was definitely in the office, at least one day. I remember my wife told me when our younger son was two years old, she took him out the front door. There was an airplane. He, he looked up and goes, hi, daddy, to wow. the airplane, right? So there was a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of times, you know, I would have loved to have been with my kids and, and wife and so forth and, or outdoors or whatever. So, you know, we worked super hard. I'm not saying we figured out how to work super smart. So, you know, it did take that and – you know, you, you see these stories about, oh, somebody comes up with something and like, you know, they have this great success. Well, we, we had a success really quickly at Next Tracker, you know, in less than two years. But that was built on like 25 years of like stepping in gopher holes and hard knocks, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to uh, move into our high voltage round. Ten questions, short answers. Question one, what is your spirit animal and why? What's my spirit animal? 
wow, I don't know, I'd probably say like a wolf. How come? I don't know. It's just kind of out on its own. It's, it's kind of independent and can handle all like environments. What have you found consistently most inspiring? I think the outdoors. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? New career tomorrow. Wow. I think, I don't know. I just love what I do. I think, you know, basically, um, I'm sorry. I've just got renewable energy on the brain. Sorry, I can't be more original. No, it's good. Um, To whom do you attribute your success? I think my, my folks, especially my dad. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Too much hubris and not listening. Success is? I, I think success is meeting expectations and then being honest when you don't and then basically learning from that. My biggest regret is? Probably not having another child. I'm most proud of? My, my sons. In order to build a clean energy company, what it takes is? I, you got to work really, really hard <laughs> with like-minded people that have a shared sense of, of values. Great. Please join me in welcoming, uh, welcoming, thanking Dan Sugar. <laughs> You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.